Today, Sean and I are doing things a little differently and looking more in depth at Ascend, specifically with one of our esteemed engineering leads, Nandan, to learn a little more about the imagining, developing, and building out of the Ascend Data Automation Cloud on Snowflake in this episode of Data Aware, a podcast about all things data engineering. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Data Aware podcast. I am once again joined by the illustrious Sean Knapp. Sean, how's it going today? It's going fantastic. How are you? I'm doing very well, and I am doing very well because we have a guest that I'm going to let you introduce here in just a second who's going to come on to help us talk about something that we um, really love here and we're super excited to talk about. And I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And it has something to do with a little something called Snowflake. And it's just a super cool topic. So I am just stoked to hear the two of you riff off each other and talk about this because it's a lot of fun when I hear it in my day-to-day world. So this is going to be a fun one. Don't you think? I do think. Awesome. Uh, and yeah, I would love to introduce someone very special from our team, uh, Nandan, who has been heading up a ton of our architectural efforts. Uh, Nandan, I, I think we can call you an Ascend old timer at this point. <laughs> um, you know, you, you've been around many blocks uh, inside of the company, but as we you know, really started this uh, new initiative, uh, and Nandan's really helped lead a ton of our, our biggest initiatives in the company, Nandan was the the brains behind the architecture mm-hmm. design and, and the execution of uh, our data plane and our Snowflake strategy. So I'm really excited to have uh, Nandan uh, on board <laughs> with us talking about Snowflake today. Yay! Welcome, Nandan. Hey, folks. I think you played me up too much, uh, Sean. Uh, <laughs> but but thank, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, Just wait. You're going to get hammered by recruiters for, uh, as soon as this podcast goes live. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Never buy you up too much. Well, uh, so yeah, I'm an engineer here at Ascend. I've been a, I've been an engineer in, in lead for over 15 years. And before Ascend, I, I used to work at uh, a company called Netscope. It was another startup. I worked in the data infrastructure team there as well. You could say that I've been involved in data engineering in some form, you know, on and off throughout my career. If anything, you know, my career so far, at least, has been bookended by data engineering roles. Although I have, I have done other things. Yeah, uh, my my current focus here at Ascend uh, is, you know, just building the systems and the services that kind of manage the the data plane that, that we're going to talk about today. Uh, well, let's dive in a little bit here then, and you know, we, we've already mentioned uh, this notion of data planes, and I'm sure a lot of folks are already starting to form their own mental model for what that is, but let's catch them before they go too far down a particular path. What is a data plane? Well, I'm still trying to work this out myself, but <laughs> well, <laughs> if, you, if you think of a data plane, uh, the way we like to think about data plane is it's, is it's, um, is it's, a, it's a storage engine, right? It's some kind of a storage backend, right? At least in the context of data engineering, it's some kind of storage backend and one or more compute engines on top of that, right? So if you think about what our product does, um, we help you know, pull data from various sources. We help you easily transform that data 
to join it, to annotate it, to roll it up, aggregate, and then write it to, to the destination of your choice, right? Uh, and in the process, you need some kind of backing storage, right? And so the data plane is like a, a proxy for, you know, some backing storage engine and uh, a choice of one or more compute uh, engines on top of that, right? So an example of a, a storage engine would be like a blob store, right? If you go to Amazon, you've got S3. If you if you go to, uh, you know if you go to GCS uh, or you know if you go to Google, you've got GCS. And for compute engines, you can think of you know Spark. You can think of warehouses like Snowflake, BigQuery. Right? The interesting thing is you can. The idea of a storage engine is a little bit flexible because you can think of a warehouse like a Snowflake or a, or a BigQuery as also a storage engine. It's not just the compute, right? So this is where the the definition is a little flexible. But I think what we make. Uh, what we allow in our product is to is to actually process data using different compute engines. So we give you that flexibility, but to continue to use a, a uniform or to standardize on a particular storage uh, technology. Awesome, super helpful. And, and you know, when we think about how Ascend historically has run, we've been a blob store plus Spark predominantly uh, as our our processing. Uh, there and, and blobs being, as you mentioned, S3, GCS, or, or Azure uh, blob store. And so I think, you know, obviously, Nandan and I have had lots of, of conversations around this and, and have um, been talking about data plans for quite some time. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting how we had our notion of a data plane before just pick your blob, you know, grab Spark and pick your Spark. You know, sometimes it was, Spark on Kubernetes, sometimes it was uh, Spark with Databricks, sometimes it was Spark with Kubel, but that was really the, the sort of set of options. And, you know, when we started to look, I know when we were, uh, when we were starting to look at uh, Snowflake, we had a lot of customers who were reading and writing to Snowflake, uh, but then we actually also started to think about how can we process data inside of Snowflake as well. Tell us a little bit about some of that, that journey on that as we started to look through and started to explore not just Spark, but Snowflake itself as a processing engine. Okay. What was the thought process with that? Yeah, so we've always supported, uh, you know, historically in our product, we've supported different languages, I guess, or different you know, query, uh, query languages for, uh, for transformation. For Spark, the obvious, you know, two choices are you can you can write code in in Spark SQL, right? Uh, Spark's flavor of SQL, and you can also write code using PySpark, right? Those are the two examples that you can think of. And we also support Scala transformations. But I think that there's such a large community out there that understands standard SQL dialect and has been using warehouses in the past, like Informatica and things like that, uh, that the the transition for them to something like a Snowflake is, is much smoother. So I think the, the choice of using Snowflake was like an obvious next step. I think what's interesting is we've known for a while that our, our control plane didn't really, could easily be extended to support other data planes, right? To support other compute infrastructures. There's nothing in our data model that, that necessarily restricts us to just Spark, right? So 
you know, we have a data model that consists of components. We think about artifacts that we produce that have partitions, right? That process over time. You know, each uh, each component has a schema, and we have a notion of a table, right? It's just how we, and even the types of transformations we do, right? Do we preserve the structure of partitions from, from the inputs and so on? Or do we kind of reshape uh, these partitions as we transform them? This is, I think these notions were language agnostic, right? And so we knew that we had something already. We just had to change the way that we architected our, our data plane infrastructure, uh, which previously was more, you know, Spark focused, if you will. So I think the question was for us was how many, well, first of all, do all of our existing features fit well with Snowflake, right? As in, are there any features in Snowflake that don't fit within our existing model for whatever reason? Uh, and there were one or two, I think, that we can talk about going forward. And, but yeah, beyond that, it was, wasn't really, it didn't significantly change the model of, you know, of our, uh, of how we thought about, you know, the way data gets processed in our system. So you're saying that this was, was one of the benefits of a microservices architecture and that we were able to, to leverage in many ways that swap out some of the infrastructure communications layer, but not actually the scheduling layer itself. That's correct. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of the, I guess, some of the, the blueprint of the product, right? And some of the architecture that was laid down before. Granted, it, it you know, we had previously indexed a little too much on um, Spark, right? Because we thought that that is where the uh, industry would be heading. But we always knew that we could pivot and change. And so I think this effort is all about kind of opening up the space to even more processing engines and, and uh, you know, warehouses. So that actually kind of leads into a question that I've kind of always had as we were going through this process, which I've heard a little bit about, but one of the things that you just brought up was there were and are, I think, as you go into all of these different processing engines, a few different feature functionality changes and differences. You know, Snowflake has a few different things than Spark has. The way you work it in Snowflake may be a little different than it is in Spark. And kind of the beauty was that we could make things work with not too much difficulty. What were some of the things where we looked at it and we were like, oh, we really need to make X work in Snowflake for our customers. And was there a lot of, was it incredibly, I don't want to say difficult because we made, we made it work, but was it incredibly difficult? What were some of the, the tweaks or changes that we need to make? Did it tell us, did that help inform anything that maybe we would have changed or done differently on the Spark side of things or anything that we would change moving forward? for anything else that we do based on that tweaking for Snowflake? Sure. Yeah, I think there's at least a couple of things that I can think of, right? And I'll give you an example of one of these. Uh, it's uh, So for example, uh, Snowflake offers the, the merge command. So this is a special kind of operation that allows a source table to be merged in to a target table, right? And so, what it's allowing you to do is basically, as you ingest new records, merge them in using some logic that you specify, but kind of update a table inputs, right? Um, and this is an operation that Snowflake offers that that they claim is is highly efficient, but it doesn't necessarily fit with 
you know, traditional, you know, data processing, uh, I guess, patterns, right? Where you expect when you when you produce an output, you expect it to be immutable and you don't want to change it, right? And so that was that was one place where we had to look at our model a little more closely and say, how do we support the merge operation? Because this is a huge value add for Snowflake. And this isn't something that we want to necessarily, we don't want to, uh, it shouldn't be that if someone decides to use our product to, to, to run queries on Snowflake, that this is a feature that's left out or that they cannot use, right? But we just had to figure out how to make it work with that part. This gives users a little bit more uh, leverage, right? A little bit more control over how their tables are updated. And so that was an area where we had to kind of uh, figure out how we would support it. Uh, and, and we have done it, right? So I think a, probably a much bigger shift in the way we think about uh, when, when when we, you know, took up this, this initiative was how do people consume uh, artifacts from each of these components, right? So, you know, in the past, we would have, so roughly the three types of components in our data pipelines, you have read connectors, right, which pull data from various sources, APIs, blob stores, databases, data warehouses. Uh, and then we have transform components, right? Transform components do, uh, this is where the compute engine comes into play, right? You've got SQL, you've got PySpark, and various SQL dialects, right? This is where you're doing the joining, the aggregation, what have you. But each of these nodes in the graph, they write outputs somewhere, right? And so how is it that users consume this output, right? these artifacts? And, and previously, when we had blob store, we, we wrote to unique locations in the, in the blob store. But we had to provide some kind of layer to access that data. Uh, it was, uh, and we had a, a few different ways of doing it. We had a JDBC interface right, that allowed them to access those tables. Uh, we gave them a, a few ways to do it via our SDK and our API, where they could preview records. And we also provided something called uh, file-based access, which is basically an S3-compatible interface on top of our uh, blob store. So what this did was provide a layer of virtualization where you could access components by their names, right? as opposed to the unique identifiers that we'd given them in our, in our blob store. So, so this is a change in our pro in our model that we're calling semantic storage, as opposed to let's say content addressable storage, right? Which is what we had before. And I can go into more detail about this, but I think this is probably the the most significant shift in our thinking, uh, in uh, for data planes, right? Uh, which is previously you had to go through a sign to consume uh, these intermediate artifacts, the outputs of these transformations, and for the most part, if you wanted to look at data on its own in a in a table in MySQL, you had to create a write connector that would pipe this data out and write it to the to a table. Whereas now with Snowflake, you can you can look at the outputs in a Snowflake table, right? And you have a lot more visibility. Uh, you can you can access the the underlying storage warehouse yourself, and you get an insight into you know the output of these components directly, right? You get to see you get to see the records. You get to access them through you know your choice of technology. And ascend just you know access the orchestration layer in this case. Yeah, I like the you know one of the things you touch on Anna, which is is I think a, a really cool distinction is you know with this new data plane architecture, it's less of ascend fully wrapping the underlying storage layer itself because of that content addressable storage paradigm. 
Ascend needed to be in the data access flow itself. And there was historical reasons as to why that, uh, for example, on basic blob store, we were able to just provide so much more advanced capabilities by, by doing that wrapping and, and by supporting content adjustable storage. But with this new shift to data planes, we're actually able to take advantage of more of the modern capabilities of those underlying planes, you know, merge operations at the complete compute layer with uh, Snowflake, but also other layers uh, or other advantages inside of the storage layers themselves these days, like ultra-efficient copy data that didn't exist before. And as a result, that lets us sit on top as opposed to wrapping, which we like too, because it makes our life a little bit easier too. It means we can we can uh, uh, have a smaller footprint, if you will. Yep. Exactly, yeah. I think it's, uh, we've always had a lot of cool, uh, uh, a really cool design around how we, you know, store artifacts uniquely based on, you know, the code that processes them and the inputs. But I think we had to bridge the gap between, you know, that and, and and people being able to see their artifacts by a name that they can easily recognize, right? And so, yeah, like you said, we that that was a that was a, a big part of the design process, right? When 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 we were building uh, the new data data plane infrastructure. So I had a question uh, around this too. Hopefully, this doesn't pull us too too techy, Leslie. You can pull us back out of the weeds if um, uh, if you want. Oh, I will. Don't. <laughs> um, what's the API of a data plane? When I think about the when we talk about our microservices and and so on. The basically, it, it did, or we have this notion of a data plane manager. Right. It gets it exposes a bunch of APIs, systems connect to it, tell it do magical stuff with the you know, data planes like Snowflake, and it does the magical stuff. What's its you know, quote unquote API, its interface to the rest of the world? What what does it do? Well, there's obviously functions to, to create a data plane, right? You have basic, you know, like data plane creation functions, right? Where you're provisioning a data plane. Like in the case of a snowflake. In case of Snowflake, you you are actually creating a warehouse, for example, or you're setting up the credentials for uh, connecting to an existing Snowflake instance. If you think about the interface between our control plane and our data plane uh, within Ascend, it's uh, it's the task processing interface, for example, right? So, you know, anytime you so, so we have a scheduling system that's constantly evaluating a graph, right? It's constantly uh, looking at the state of the graph, the state of the nodes, and to see if they're up to date or not. And if they're not, it generates tasks that need to be executed by the data plane. Right. So this is an inter- this is a gRPC interface that we have between our scheduling system and our data plane. Right. So it's it's the interface to actually run tasks. And even within within this, there's a differentiation between tasks that ingest data. And you know, this is tasks that are very connector specific, right? So you have tasks that pull from various types of sources, right? And even within those, you have to list, you have to identify, you know, what objects you have in your input um, data source, right? And then you have ones that actually read and parse them and and actually pull them in into your uh, storage uh, backplane. Uh, and then you have the transformation tasks, right? So. So a rough kind of a way to describe the transformation, the, the transform tasks is you have some code written in some language 
that's data plane specific, right? Or that's understood only by the data plane, but the scheduling scheduler knows nothing about. So it has a certain shape. It has, you know, it's uh, the task has some some part of it that describes if it's you know, kind of preserving the structure of the input, if it's aggregating the input and reshaping it in any way. It talks about, for example, if you're unioning with another input, right? What other partitions to union with? Uh, so that's part of the interface, right? It also tells you where you're writing to, right? What location or what unique partition ID in the output to write to. And this is where the data plane takes over and 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 decides, okay, this is my storage engine. This I know now how to translate the writing part, right? So there's a compute phase, and then there's a write the output to the storage phase, right? The other parts are, you know, schema inference. So think about when you change the configuration of a of an existing component, right? You need to know what the output schema is going to look like. And so that's part of the data plane interface as well, which is, you know, uh, I'm going to be writing some new output. Has the schema changed, right? Because the code has changed. Or does it stay the same, right? So there's an inference, a schema inference part of it. And this is, again, an interesting part of data planes, which is we have to create a bridge between what ascend, uh, the schema that we presented ascend, and let's say the data types that the that the storage engine presents, right? So this is another interesting challenge uh, because different data planes have different support for, for you know, native support for data types. Yeah, we have like records preview, so our users can at any time pull and sample and look at a specific, you know, portion of, you know, the, you know, a component or what was processed, right? They can look at a certain, you know, range of records, for example. We have, we have a query interface, so if you think about the bread and butter of a sign where we're, we're, you know, processing inputs, you know, performing a computation, writing it out, right? So we're performing a side effect. But, but uh, the query interface is something that just queries an existing, it's, it's more an interactive, uh, interactive interface, right? This is where a user can actually, uh, through an API or through the UI, essentially type in a SQL query and say, I want to query these components, right? Using standard SQL. And I want to sample the records or look at them, right? So that's uh, without the intention of ever writing them out, right? This is just part of the expo exploration, right? Of, um, of uh, the components that you have in your system. Yeah, so I think broadly that's that's the interface that I think you, you could divide the interface. This is just the, a very coarse grain slicing of the, of, uh, and this is one way to slice it, right? Another way to look at it is how do you think of the resources in your, in your compute engine, right? You have to model resources and capacity. Uh, and that is very data plane specific as well. Right? So, so for example, in, in the case of our, our Spark offering, we have a certain maximum capacity in terms of uh, cores and memory. And that for us is a way that we model it. Uh, whereas in the case of Snowflake, it's different, right? So I hope that probably answers it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about if there were other APIs that I think that covers it. Uh, you're on mute. I do remember too. We had a really interesting one, where obviously you know for our system to measure mm -hmm. uh, how much is being used, as we have a usage-based uh, metering model for, for our product. Yeah. Uh, we had to even measure how much usage was being pushed down to, to Snowflake. Right. And right. you know with Spark clusters, we just monitor how big the Spark cluster is with. Other systems, oftentimes, they give you a, a feedback. Uh, but this was an interesting one where 
we, we were puzzled for a little bit. Uh, and then uh, I think he, he has found a really creative way of seeing how big the system itself was. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So in the case of Snowflake, it's uh, it's Snow, Snowflake comes to you in pre-sized, you know, these warehouse, uh, right? The warehouse is a unit. You can think of the warehouse as a cluster right, for processing or running your queries. And so it's really the way you want to meter customers or, or determine usage is based on the size of the warehouse. But then Snowflake, you know, depending on load, will also spin up new clusters or spin down clusters, right? And so this is where we actually actively query the query Snowflake's API and kind of gather this information. How many running clusters of a particular size you have? And that feeds into our metering, right? Because based on the size, you know how many nodes, right? What the size of nodes is. And this gives us a way to, uh, to bill customers. So we have a fairly generic, you know, metrics collection system, usage metrics collection system. But yeah, this is part of the functionality. What surprised you the most uh, as we've gone through this process? Leslie's giving giving us a look. I'm giving you a look because you stole my question. You always <gasps> ask that question. Sorry, it's fine. It's a question. I know that's why you stole my question, Leslie. What has surprised you the most about Snowflake? Um, how amazingly, honestly, and I, I literally am not. Everybody out there listening is like, "Well, of course she's going to say that about her own company." But I know it's really, honestly, how amazingly quickly the team at, led by Nandan was able to to get this up and running for customers and and get it going. It was. And how much the customers have enjoyed using it um, and how quickly they're bringing workloads onto it, which is the high-level answer. And I'm, I actually want to hear what Nandan has to say about it. And honestly, Sean, I want to hear what you have to say about it as well. This was just one of those things where it was like, oh, okay, data plane, <laughs> new, new compute engine. Yay, got it. Let's go. Customers can use it. Woo-hoo. And it was like, it was like, no big deal. Got it. And it was like, wait, wait, huge deal, very big deal, massively big deal. Let's very big deal. So it was, it was super cool. I mean, I think from everybody's perspective, but from again, marketing, very non-technical perspective, looking at it, it was it was really cool to see how elegantly it all came together. I like that word, elegantly. Nandan, what surprised you? Yeah, so I'd say it's it just surprised me how quickly we could get from from prototype to a product that customers can actually use and is fairly full featured. And I think in the process we realized that we could we could change our development practices a little bit, how we designed our services to consolidate more. I think that's made the speed of development faster. I think it's partly I'm I'm also surprised that it's been a bit of a revelation also to, to watch customers actually use it and to see how fast you can build components, right? There's these cloud technologies are, are fast to run on their own, but the challenge is always the, you know, how do you how do you, how do you iterate quickly, right? How do you build a component graph, right? So you need a UI that that enables this, and you need to get feedback, right? As you're building these components, you need a developer experience that enables this, and so when you combine the speed of some of these warehouses uh, and the responsiveness with actually the responsiveness of our UI, right, that enables this. Kind of connects the two and makes you know bigger things happen. So it's it's just interesting seeing people build out use cases as quickly as they do uh, once we roll this out. 
Was there something else that, what surprised you, uh, Sean, about this? Now you, you all took all the good ones. Um, as you guys are talking, I'm like, okay, let's see, I'm going to have to get really creative here on surprises. Because mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, wholeheartedly big thumbs up on, on the things that you guys are saying. I think the, the only piece that I could have that would probably be additive would be it's surprising how quickly things are converging. And when I say things, I mean the notions of ETL versus ELT, the idea of uh, data engineering and analytics engineering, the notion of a lake architecture and a warehouse architecture. You know, we've oftentimes joked about ETL versus EOT. In reality, it's just always ETL, TLT, OTL, As it just continues to go on, nothing ever just is transformed once and dropped somewhere else. Uh, and whether it's extracted and loaded and then the transform cycle starts, it, these are largely semantics these days. Uh, as when we, when we look at the work that people are doing, it's all largely the same these days. Maybe they are choosing to do it more Python-centric versus SQL-centric versus Scala-centric, but it's increasingly converging. And then when we look at, and we've been doing a lot of this with the data planes, is when we look at the capabilities and, and the directions, we see the Spark world is looking increasingly like warehouses. We see the warehouse world with folks like Snowflake increasingly look like Spark style processing engines with their own Python interfaces, it's really starting to look pretty darn similar, which is great because I think the ultimately they we see these worlds converging, which I think helps one simplify the understanding for folks as they come into the industry, which is you can be successful on either sort of strategy. You should find the one that fits your needs the the, the most but that uh, there continues to be such incredible investment from the underlying um, data infrastructure providers uh, that we're gonna continue to see a flurry of really compelling features and capabilities uh, that continue to allow us to tackle more use cases and solve uh, even more interesting problems, regardless of your, your, your lake or your, your warehouse architecture. So, without giving too much away, what do you think that this means for the future of, I hate to call it the future of Ascend, I don't think that's exactly right, but what do you think that this means for the future of, but it kind of is, like, what do you think it means for the future of Ascend or the future of the Ascend platform? Or really, because a lot of this too is, I mean, we've talked, I'll be the marketing person for a second. We've talked a lot really awesomely, which is why I was super excited to have Nandan on and have the two of you just kind of go to town is to talk in more depth about uh, Snowflake and data planes and, and what we did. But to put like a super fine point on it is what we did was bring the power of really awesome data automation to Snowflake for data engineers. So go us. Um, and what does that 
mean? So how, how does this impact the future? How does this impact the future of automation for data engineers? What does this mean that we can do in the future? Again, whoever wants to go first. I think we're going to see continued uh, innovation happening uh, at the data infrastructure level. I, I would contend that there are, and I'm sure we will end people by the number, somewhere between four and six monolithic organizations driving tremendous levels of innovation at the data infrastructure level. From cloud vendors to standalone, standalone not being obviously the, the three big clouds, but we see tremendous innovation happening here. I think that's very exciting. I think the ability to bring a sense level of automation to that level of innovation that's happening at the lower levels of the stack is, is very compelling uh, as it helps teams frankly, take advantage of those capabilities and make the most of those faster, easier. And so, you know, we are very interested and very excited by the, the continued innovation happening at that level uh, in the, the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, mine's a more engineering take on this, right? Which is, I think that I, what I've seen over time is people just moving higher and higher up in the stack, right? Becoming less and less concerned with or interested in solving the problems of actually orchestration, right? There was a time when it was cool to be able to, you know, to know the details of, you know, how to spin up a Spark cluster, how to run it at scale, you know, how to, how to run jobs at scale, how to keep track of all these things. Uh, and, and these are complex things, right? You don't want to be building all of these in-house. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's just interesting. I, I think a lot of the, you you have these big battles, right? The, the warehouse versus lake battles uh, going on, and there's a lot of convergence. And, and people are trying to settle on a particular storage backend, if you will, or a particular technology first. Uh, but then they're all vying for each other's, uh, vying for each other's, I guess, use, right? So, so you know, I'm 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 personally interested to see how this plays out. Uh, but I know that we'll be fine either way because. <laughs> because I think we're fairly agnostic. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. That it is, that it is. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Nanda, I think you may have to just get used to the fact that we're probably gonna have you back on. You did, a, you did this is wonderful. You and Sean, we're gonna, we're probably going to have you back on Shield. We're just going to start mixing and matching. You're going to have to do this all the time now. So this is wonderful. Thank you. Thank I you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. It really was amazing to have a behind-the-scenes view of Nandan and the rest of the team build Ascend for Snowflake. And even more amazing to see customers start using it and building out use cases so quickly. Just love to see it. If you want to learn more about the Ascend Data Automation Cloud for Snowflake, you can always visit us at ascend.io or reach out at data-eng at ascend.io. Welcome to a new era of data engineering.